We return this morning to the Messiah's Manifesto, Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 32. Matthew 5, 27 through verse 32. King Jesus said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body should be cast into Gehenna or hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committed adultery. Father, this morning we once again give pause to our Lord as he speaks in that unique recorded moment of time concerning manifestations of thy holy law that reveal so dramatically our absolute need of thy deliverance. Lord, no man, no woman, no child can meet the standard of thy righteousness. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Help us in this morning to once again see in the words of the Lord Jesus that compelling drive of soul to cast ourselves on his gift at Calvary and to know the blessing of salvation in the name of our Lord. Thank you for the occasion. Instruct thy people. Draw upon the sinner's heart for salvation today, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Godly marriage is all about leave, cleave, and weave. It's all about leaving your mother and your father cleaving to your mate, and weaving together a life in honor to God. After quoting Genesis 2.24 concerning God's creative design in marriage, the Apostle Paul spoke of a profound related mystery appointed in eternity past of God, in which the oneness of a godly marriage illustrates the exact relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33 is the longest teaching on the subject of Christian marriage in the New Testament. And that passage draws an analogy between the relational oneness known in a godly marriage and the relational oneness believers possess by faith in Jesus Christ. No wonder the scriptures say that God hates or detests divorce. And you will see that for yourself shortly 
in the pages of the Word of God. Now, it is extremely important this morning that we not just focus a topical review uh, of what the Scripture has to say about marriage and divorce. This particular section, once again, illustrates the Lord's point that is made back at 520, chapter 5 and verse 20, concerning the superior righteousness of God's demand. God requires a superior righteousness to that which sinful man can perform or achieve. In other words, the purpose of this sermon, at least on the forefront, was to reveal the absolute bankruptcy of my soul and yours to make it without God's intervention and salvation. Again and again and again, these illustrations are meant to bring the soul up short, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody that is right thinking should think, you know what, I'm doing pretty good, I'm good enough to make it. Nobody should think that way, absolutely no one. God requires the superior righteousness that is reflective of his own perfect character, God requires an actual inner sense of righteous as he is righteous. Therefore, this Sermon on the Mount, this messianic manifesto, reveals the character and the conduct of actual righteousness as God speaks and is righteous. Six illustrations in Matthew chapter 5, are used by the Lord to drive home uh, the truth of personal bankruptcy and need of salvation. Six illustrations are brought to bear, and today we're dealing with two more of them. You see the structure in 27 and 28, ye have heard, but I say unto you. 31, it hath been said, Verse 32, but I say unto you, the Lord Jesus is not in any way correcting the law. He is simply uh, demonstrating the misrepresentation of the law of God by the religious leaders in that particular day and gives to us, by way of his words, the true intent and extent of God's standard by which men will be actually judged by God. The only interpretation of the scripture that matters this morning is the one that Jesus himself gave. The second and third illustration focus upon the sanctity of marriage. Marriage, one man and one woman together until death uh, are separated, is God's stated will, period. The lifelong commitment of a man and a woman to monogamous marriage, physically, spiritually, socially, is in fact God's demand. Our Lord states the law of God as written, but then demonstrates the intention and the extent of that marriage law on this particular occasion. It reminds us of the summary statement that we've often referred to in other venues, from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will 
judge. Hebrews 13.4 well summarizes the biblical position. Now, in this particular day of record, the Lord Jesus Christ expounds upon the marital relationship in order to reveal the character and the conduct of righteousness as demanded by God. If you've been following along week by week, if in fact you pass the murder test that the Lord gave at the beginning of this, uh, this particular uh, exposition, uh, now you are confronted with what we might call the marriage test. Uh, the, the murder test is, uh, is uniquely informed by our Lord, uh, not only to be an external act in which someone else is harmed to the point of death, but indeed an internal attitude of anger directed towards a person without cause. If you pass the murder test, and very few of us do, then you're confronted next with the marriage test. And when you see the standard for that, uh, very few of us would meet the standard of this test as well. Again, underscoring the bankruptcy of the soul apart from God's intervention and God's salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord at the cross. We begin this morning by considering the common violations of marriage as are talked about by the Lord Jesus in this text. Lustful looking is declared to be a violation of marriage on a plane equal to physical adultery. In fact, it's called adultery of the heart. Verse 28. The word look means to gaze upon and indeed would be the key word of appeal concerning all things pornographic. No man can avoid exposure to nudity, especially in our day. But every man can decide where to look once exposed, where to direct the eyes, where to direct the mind. You cannot always prevent exposure to nudity, in this society, but you can choose as to where to direct the mind and the eyes. David could not control having seen Bathsheba from his palace penthouse, but his penthouse gaze is what led to physical adultery and ultimately murder. David was an adulterer in the heart long before he was an adulterer in his body. Both heart and body violate God's standard. The law is external, and the law is internal, and that is a huge problem for any sinner, and I was born a sinner, as were you born a sinner. And the fact that God's righteous standard involves not only what you do, but what you think and what's in your heart, it is absolutely condemning of each and every one of us in one way or another. 
By the way, please don't think that this only this morning is to be understood as a male thing. This is not limited in any way to gender. My dead buddy Arthur Pink said, quote, if lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less, but perhaps more, guilty. We need men like Job, as recorded in Job 31.1. We need men like Job who will covenant with their eyes not to look upon a woman to lust after her. And we need women who will dress and deport themselves with modesty and purity. Every generation has in its assault upon these good, godly standards of the Word of God, and this generation is no exception. The second common violation addressed by the Lord was an easy, no-fault divorce. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught that as long as you cared for the legal matters, as long as you made physical provisions for the wife of your youth, uh, then whatever other reason there was to cause a disillusion of that relationship would be, of course, considered okay. Jesus not only confirmed that it was never, ever God's creative intention that couples divorce, but also that those casual attitudes towards divorce and remarriage perpetuate adulterous conditions. God's serious about marriage, and that is reflected in the Old Testament penalty for adultery, which of course is death. Not only would under the law of God one die for the crime of murder, but one would die for the crime of adultery. Death is the penalty. Listen to God speak concerning the very same kind of cavalier attitude that was addressed by the Lord Jesus in regards to marriage in the New Testament as it is recorded towards the close of the Old Testament period. Uh, Go back just a few pages in your Bible to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi and chapter 2. And let's walk through the horrendous relational case that is addressed here by God's prophet Malachi in the second chapter. Uh, We'll begin by reading verses 11 to 13, just to get us into the text. Judah hath dealt treacherously. And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, 
with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. In the last of the Old Testament prophecies, we see that the remnant of Jewish returnees commit the same old relational sins as did their fathers. The call of God under the law forbidding his ethnic people to marry pagan worshipers had once again become wildly the norm. This practice is called by Yahweh, verse 11, an abhorrent abomination. That the sons of Judah would marry pagan women. Making things worse, many of those Jewish men that took for themselves pagan wives dumped their commitment to their Jewish wife in doing so. In other words, Malachi describes not only men that are marrying the wrong women, but men that are dumping their wife, the wife of their youth, in order to marry that sweet babe with red lipstick all dowed up for the dance. And as a result of that, you would think that such a man would just be done with God. But no, no, no. Many people that want to live contrary to the word of God also like to attend church or attend worship or in that situation, temple or synagogue. And so here are men that not only are violating God's uh, rules for home life, uh, rules for married life, but here are men that are continuing to bring, as it were, their offerings to the temple, their offerings to the place of worship, and they just don't understand, they just don't understand, they just don't understand why, 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 why God is not receiving them. They're living the way they want to, but they're more than happy to attend worship. They're living the way they want to, but they're more than happy to bow and curtsy in the ritual ways of God's law. They just don't want to live the way that God indeed has prescribed that they indeed should live. And so these misguided men find themselves haunted by their lack of acceptance before God at the end of verse 13 as read. Furthermore, verse 14 will say that those men had violated God's law of marriage and acted as if God was somehow unfair or unresponsive. God tells them in plain speech what their problem actually is. And we read now verses 14 through 16. Yet ye say, wherefore, why, God, are we finding such lackluster experiences in worship when we gather with our offerings? Wherefore, God? Here's God's answer. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. God pays attention to what a man and a woman do in the privacy of their own home, each for the other, and both for the Lord. 
God pays attention to that. And God was witness in that generation of the treachery that was taking place in the homes of Judah. Again, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, or with hypocrisy. Yet she is thy companion. The first word that defines biblical understanding of marriage in this passage is the word companion. God gave a wife to a man as a companion. And more than companion, the wife of thy covenant. The wife of thy vow. The wife of thy commitment. Marriage is about a companion. Marriage is about a commitment. Verse 15, And did not he, God, make one? Yet he had the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? Why did God determine that two coming together in marriage would be one flesh? The Bible says that he, God, might seek a godly Seed. When a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man in the Lord, then they posture their home to honor God. And when they posture their home to honor God, God is the inheritor of additional godly seed. Those that grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Scripture then says, Malachi preaching, Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Take heed to your heart. Malachi understood that the sin of the men of Judah in dumping their Jewish wives of their youth and getting pagan wives uh, uh, at a given point in time was more than a sin in the body. He understood that sin is always and forever a matter of the heart. And so Malachi preaches and says, Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now, many of you know from having studied the New Testament scriptures and particularly the writings of Peter in his first epistle that a man's prayer before God a husband's prayer before God is particularly said to be stifled when a man is out of sorts with his wife. God specifically says that a man ought to be careful uh, to attend well to his Christian wife, that his prayers be not hindered. That is a phenomenal concept of how it is that what you and, do, you and I do on Monday what you and I do on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, how that affects the aspect of the quality of our worship uh, in devotions day by day and in public worship on Sunday. The reality is, is that there is an absolute appointed link between your personal life and your public worship life in the Lord. Take heed to your spirit, let none dare treacherously with the wife of his youth. Verse 16. For the Lord 
Notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the ever-existing one. The God of Israel saith that he hateth putting away. He hateth divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Divorce may well be an allowable thing by God under certain extremely sin-filled circumstances, but divorce always increases the potential for adultery. Our society sadly confirms this over and over again. Please don't miss the Lord's point. God's sexual standard is violated commonly by almost all people. So if you thought to pass the murder test under the law, with which Jesus explained, including unrighteous anger, now you are confounded with the purity test of marriage, which Jesus explained includes thoughts of sexual lust. Someone may well then think, if those things be true, then there is no man or woman alive that can stand the test before God in the day of judgment. Right. What can you do about that? Nothing. What has God done about that? He sent his only begotten son into the world for the very purpose of dying as a sinless man for a sinful world. You can believe on the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ and know that by faith in his name, your sins are gone as to penalty and curse under the righteous standard of God. Don't negate. Don't Underwhelm. Don't dismiss the righteousness of God's law. Don't make it up for yourself and thereby think yourself to be okay. Understand that what the Bible says is absolutely true. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And cast your only hope upon that which is truly hope, and that is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul did not say, I know what I believe. A lot of you can say that. Paul said, 
I know on whom I have believed. And the one on whom you and I must believe is Jesus Christ. That brings us then secondly this morning to a compelling verification. The Lord's own compelling uh, verification. We're back in Matthew chapter 5 and we're working with this section on adultery and divorce and that's when the Lord says just look at it again in verse uh, 29 if thy right eye offend thee pluck it out and cast it from thee for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell and if thy right hand offend thee cut it out or cut it off and cast it from thee for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Jesus points to the way of deliverance from sins of the heart. Now remember, sin must always be dealt with radically. Listen now to the following statements carefully. It is not lusty-looking that makes the heart sinful, but the sinful heart that causes lusty looking. It is not divorce that makes a person depraved, but depravity that leads to divorce. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. You can pluck the eye. And all you've done is eliminated the means, the tool in which your lust-filled heart does follow. In other words, plucking and cutting is not ever the solution to the problem. Because the problem are not the symptoms of sin, that are all around us. The problem is the heart of sin with which you were born. The pluck and cut advice of the Lord confirms that we should, as believers in Christ, be willing to indeed eliminate anything from our life that would prevent us from sinful living. But it is not presented as the solution to the problem in any terms or stretch of the imagination. God expects us to purposely think through and control as his children those things that are indeed around us. I agree that God has not called us to live as monks in a monastery, but that does not mean that we are to live in this world as worldly monkeys just doing anything and scratching anywhere we itch. If you do not seek to control what you see, hear, and take into your life, who will? While the message of Jesus brings forward the bankruptcy of the soul by which every man would indeed in logic and rationale cry out to God, Oh God, what can we do? 
to which the Lord says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That said, the passage, the principle of pluck and cut, does indeed encourage us as God's children to do what we can to control what we see and hear and take into our life with the understanding that if Job doesn't make a vow to control his own eyes, who would be able to do that for Job? If parents don't supervise their children's education, their children's entertainment, their children's schedule, what hope could there possibly be for stability and peace at home? May God grant us the spirit of the old gospel song, Take the World! But give me Jesus. Restricting the Internet's use and media won't make anybody's heart clean. But, that said, it surely can help so as to prevent fanning the fires of sin from within. If your eye is indeed the problem, knowing that it's never really the problem. If your eye is a problem, then what should you do? Well, then do something to eliminate the aspect of that that temptation. That is a phenomenal verification of both the necessity and bankruptcy of the soul uh, upon the Lord's salvation. Jesus Christ died for our sins on the third day, rose Uh, He died for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended before the right hand of the Father, that we might have uh, life in his name. And as those that have life in his name, it doesn't eliminate the fact that people that are righteous, as God deems righteous, not only seek to live righteously, but living righteously requires that you restrict and discipline yourself in the ways in which you can. Not by eye-plucking. But it might mean shutting off the TV. It might mean looking the other way. It might mean directing the, the mind in ways that would indeed please the Lord as you would think and know them to be pleasing. Again, that is a phenomenal element of verification from our Lord. And then, of course, all of this in this particular section as murder before it And now marriage as under consideration these verses and what's coming next concerning our mouth. Sins of the mouth. That's up next. Uh, You need to consider again the the vitalization here, uh, the life-giving nature here of emphasis. There is a vitality and there is a vibrancy that is available uh, to kingdom citizens in direct connection to Jesus Christ. He alone can make the heart clean. One of the things we recently covered at Adult Bible Study on Wednesday night was that beautiful testimony passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn there just for a quick minute, and let me remind you of that testimony passage. It has its own exegetical point, as we covered it at Adult Bible Study on Wednesday night. 
but pulling it out of its context, it still is a beautiful, beautiful testimonial passage concerning the ability of Christ to cleanse the heart. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abuser of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Ten named categories of sin. Anyone that falls under any element of those ten categories of named sins by no means shall enter the kingdom of God. If that was the end of the chapter, if that was the end of the book, I wouldn't have the guts to show up and preach today. But the next verse says, And such were, past tense, no longer are, and such were some of you. Some of you church folk were, back to the list, fornicators. Some of you church folk were idolaters. Some of you church folk were adulterers. Some of you church folk were effeminate. Some of you church folk were abusers of themselves with mankind. Some of you church folk were thieves. Some of you church folk were covetous. Some of you church folk were drunkards. Some of you church folk were revilers. Some of your church folk were extortioners, none of which will inherit the kingdom of God. But those church folk, of which some were, are now, watch, washed, sanctified, justified. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, cleansed, cleaned by the Lord. You are sanctified, holyized, sanitized, holy as it were, before God, and justified, declared as it were to be righteous before the throne room of God in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Nobody around here is without the hope of Christ. And having the hope of Christ, one certainly would understand how offensive it is to a thrice holy God that there should be any remnants of fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, abusers of themselves with mankind, thievery, covetousness, drunkenness, carousing, or financial extortioning among the people of God. Beloved, we are called in Christ to live as Christ lived on earth, holy as unto the Lord. We all need to acknowledge before God that we have a sin problem. 
We need to look to the Lord and the Lord alone for a clean heart. And then as believers, we need to address the things that trigger and feed our sinful lifestyles. Our faith and hope rest in the blessed man, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is God's provision for our righteousness. He is our provision for the righteousness of God's demand. As the psalmist said it to God, thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is true. When King Jesus came into the world in the first advent, he did not in any way overturn the law, dismiss the law, undercut the law, change the law, or redirect the law. All he did was explain the law of God as it was originally given. To be both a standard of righteousness in the external man of which any man could fake and righteousness in the internal man which only God can bring to the heart and life of a sinner. Oh, how important it is that we remain as a local church family true to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, Father, help us this morning then.